Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Mike Whitney, as Jonas said. <clears throat> and uh, I'll be bringing uh, a sermon this morning. It's great to see everyone. Just uh, thought I'd mention, um, as a proud grandpa, that uh, uh, Priscilla and Calvin had uh, twins. They were uh, born uh, healthy on uh, uh, Tuesday afternoon-ish, evening, I guess evening. Um, and so uh, they're still in the NICU. They'll be in there for a little while longer. Uh, Priscilla was discharged this week, but the uh, babies are still in the uh, NICU. Actually, they graduated from the NICU yesterday and moved over to a family room. So we're, we're excited. You can still keep praying for Sherilyn. Uh, she is over a week overdue uh, with her second baby, our sixth grandchild. So, um, yeah, lots happening in the Whitney house. <laughs> uh, one more thing I want to mention uh, before we get to, the, at the end of my sermon, we'll be doing communion. And something we haven't done in two years, we'll be passing the plate for communion. And uh, so I'm kind of excited about that. Uh, we'll have ushers come out, come up and uh, uh, do the communion service, actually church leaders. And uh, I do want to mention that all of the bread that we'll be serving on the plate is gluten-free. The, unfortunately, if, if you want to have a kit for whatever reason, uh, uh, you'll just need to raise your hand at the right time and Mark will get you uh, a kit. But those kits are not gluten-free, so I apologize for that. So those are just a couple of quick things before I get started. Well, uh, last week I was up here and uh, Jonah was preaching, but I gave a pastoral prayer uh, in reaction to the school shooting at U in Uvalde, Texas. And in that prayer, we turned to God using the book of Habakkuk, and we asked questions of God in a lament, which was a little different for us. We asked questions of God in a lament. And these questions included, how long, O oh Lord, should we cry for help and it seems like you don't hear? And we asked the question, where are you, God, in the midst of these atrocities? In our grief and lament and our desire for action, we come asking these questions of God, the same questions the world is asking us, actually. But we don't ask these questions in rebellion to God or in rejection of the faith, not at all. We ask them to a God that we trust, to the one whom we believe created all things, to the only wise God, omnipotent, omniscient, loving, and good. That's what we believe about God. And it's the God who, like I said last week, didn't just stand up in heaven and give pat answers to evil, but came down to earth and was impacted by evil. Jesus shed his own blood on the cross at the hands of wicked men to redeem us from all wickedness. And this is actually the best answer we have to the question, where are you, God? When we point people to Jesus and when we are pointed to Jesus, that's probably the best answer. Well, this same Jesus that appeared to the Apostle Paul 
on the road to Damascus in Acts 22, it's the same Jesus that we'll look at today in Acts 22. And Paul, Paul didn't have to ask the question, where are you, God? Because he was right in front of him. He asked two different questions. What I'm calling two great questions, which is the subject, uh, the title of this sermon. The two questions I have before you, who are you, Lord, and what shall I do, Lord? And I first noticed these two questions about 40 years ago in the mid-80s as I was praying through my life purpose and direction, actually. I was down at West Point in those days. It was before I was married. And I was beginning to ask God these two questions. In many ways, these two questions are what I would call the right questions. I would call these two questions the right questions. Okay, I'm going to quote from Plato here. (laughs) The Greek philosopher Plato said something like this. The right questions are sometimes just as important as the right answers. And I'd say defining what the right questions are helps us to find the right answers. So if we define the right questions first, then we'll find the right answers. Okay, you ready for this next quote? Albert Einstein, can you believe it? Well, um, Albert Einstein said this, if I had an hour to solve a problem and my life depended on the solution, I would spend the first 55 minutes determining the proper question to ask. For once I know the proper question, I could solve the problem in less than five minutes. Okay, so a little bit of an overstatement, but we are talking about Einstein here, okay? Um, Actually, Norell's dad, one of of his professors was Einstein at Princeton. So anyway, so so there's a couple of quotes. So I think the right questions to ask after last week's atrocity in Texas, the right question to ask was, or possibly, was, where are you, Lord? And to ask it in faith. But this week, in Acts 22, we'll see the Lord show up in an unmistakable way to confront Paul with his own question. Then we'll see Paul ask Jesus two great questions. And what I want to do this morning is to go through Paul's account of what happened. I want to give some context to who his audience was. And then I want to look at these two questions. My hope is to show why I think these two questions are the right questions to ask, not only for Paul then, but for us today. And I hope to show, by the end of the time, how we might align our life purpose and direction according to these two questions, like the Apostle Paul did. Then I plan to finish up by showing one of the answers to these two questions can be found in the verse that Brett Brett Vickery read for us today in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So that's where I'm going uh, with this sermon. That's the plan. Uh, Let me go ahead and read from Acts 22, the first 15 verses, and then I'll pray and we'll get started. You can find um, this on, on page 931. 
in the pew hymnal if you want to uh, follow along. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city, they were in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way, I drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Okay, let me pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. We ask that you would open up our eyes to this text, open up our eyes to your word, that we might understand it. Lord, we, we don't come here just to be smarter and to learn things cognitively. We come here to be different. We pray that you would change and transform our lives to be conformed to the image of your Son. As we read these scriptures, help us to be willing to do them as well. We just thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, to set the context... Remember that last week, Jonah shared the story of Paul being, remember, misunderstood when he went to the temple, and he went there as an act of devotion to God. But they thought he was defiling the temple. And the Jews who were from Asia said that he was teaching other Jews to just disregard the Jewish laws and customs. Some of them had assumed that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, think, remember that word Gentile, that he had brought a Gentile into the temple in violation of Jewish laws and customs. None of this was true. None of it was true. 
So based on this misunderstanding and this false assumption, they stirred up the crowds when they saw Paul in the temple. And they dragged him out of the temple, shut the gate, and began beating him to kill him. They wanted to kill him. When the Roman soldiers saw what was happening, they ran down to find out what was going on. But they couldn't learn the facts because of the uproar of the people shouting different things. So they took Paul away, and as he was being taken away, and and Jonah described this last week, he got permission from the tribune to speak to the people. Getting that permission... He then motioned with his hands to the people, and they hushed to listen to what he had to say. This is what happened leading up to the address that we're going to talk about. So he was in Jerusalem, outside the temple, with the gate closed, surrounded by a hostile crowd of Jews, some who believed in Jesus, some who did not. He had been falsely accused, he had been beaten, and he was likely sore from the beating. But as we, as we see him begin to speak, we see no anger, no resentment or hostility in his message. He didn't get up there to chew him out. He didn't even really defend himself from the accusations they made about him. Rather, he told the story of how he met Jesus who directed him to do the things that he was doing. One of the things I've been doing uh, as we go through this is uh, I'm reading, you know, we're all reading the book from N.T. Wright, or a bunch of us are. I'm also reading this book here from Leroy Imes, who wrote The uh, Lost Art of Disciple Making. He's a navigator. This was Leroy's study of the book of Acts. Um, I don't think it's in print anymore. I happened to get a copy about 40 years ago. Um, And he used this as as the source document for many of his books. Um, But in this book, in this section, he comments on what's going on here. So I just want to read some of that um, commentary. He says, The Asian Jews who knew and hated Paul spotted him in the temple and assumed that he brought one of his friends and had polluted the place. So they attacked Paul and tried to beat him to death. The commander in charge quickly moved in with his men and stopped the attempted murder. And then Leroy says this. Then an incredible thing happened. Paul seized this as a witnessing opportunity. There was a wild, bloodthirsty mob screaming for his death. They had beaten him. The air was filled with hatred and violence. But Paul viewed his attempted murder as an open door for preaching the gospel and giving his testimony. While most of us would have fled for our lives and taken comfort in our rescue by the soldiers, Paul saw it in a completely different light. Isn't that interesting? He saw this fanatical mob screaming for his execution as an opportunity to give a word (laughs) of personal testimony. Yeah, this is one of the most surprising things of this whole uh, chapter. Acts 21 ends with Paul, ready to speak to the people. Okay, so what did he say? Well, I think it's important to point out here that there are three accounts 
of Paul's meeting of Jesus on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts. There is actually three accounts in Acts written by Luke of him meeting Jesus. The first one is here in, well, the first one is in Acts 9. And it's, it's what we read already when we went through Acts 9. It's basically Luke's account to a believer, or soon to be a believer, named Theophilus, whom he wrote the whole book to. So he's describing it. So Luke is describing what happened based on his good research to this, like the rest of the book, to Theophilus. So that's the context of Acts 9. Acts 22 is what this is here. And it was given in the context of Jews who were zealous for the law, just outside the temple, who wanted to kill him. (laughs) That's the context of Acts 22. Acts 29 is a slightly different context. It's given before King Agrippa, a Roman official, about a couple years later. Each of these accounts contains the main part of the story, his former life of persecuting Christians, seeing the bright light on the road to Damascus, the appearance of Jesus, and Jesus' confrontational question to Paul, why are you persecuting me? They all include some part of Paul's dialogue with Jesus and what Jesus was appointing him for and calling him to do. The variations in these accounts are probably related to emphasizing different things based on different, attra- different audiences. It had to be different in order to tell the same story to different audiences. It's just the way it is. In this case, probably because of his Jewish audience, Paul emphasized his Jewish ancestry and his education. So you'll read it as, as we went through. And he named one of the foremost rabbis of the day, Gamaliel, as his instructor. And he described his education as according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. He described himself as being zealous for God, just as they were. So he began his message by complimenting them on their zeal for God, and identifying with the zeal. That's what he did. Then he described. So, so after he kind of did that and described his kind of credibility as a Jew, as a, as a Pharisee, basically, then, then he described what happened to him on the road to Damascus as if this could have happened to any one of them. And, and he was traveling on the road to Damascus to persecute and arrest and imprison believers in Jesus. And here's what he said. I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noontime. A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, so Paul is confronted with a great light from heaven and a rather confrontational question, Right? And it's a why question. There doesn't seem to be much debate about whether Paul was in fact persecuting people. But that's not the question. It's not the question. The question implies that Paul was persecuting not just people, but the one who's asking the question. The one whose appearance is accompanied by a great light, which blinded Paul, caused him to fall to the ground, and terrified his companions. Whoever it was asking this question, 
He was powerful. So when Paul responded to him, he called him Lord. But the question was why? Why are you persecuting me? It was a why question with no good answer. There was no good reason, no good excuse for what he was doing once he realized that it was the Lord he was doing it to. And when he realized it, then the most important next thing he needed to know was who was saying this. So he asked, who are you, Lord? The next most important question after what just happened, he didn't say why he was persecuting him. He said, who are you, Lord? Once he found out that it was Jesus, that Jesus was the Lord, the next obvious question was, well, then what shall I do, Lord? These two perfectly good questions are the right questions. And I'll return in a minute to tell you why I think they're the right questions. So Jesus went ahead and answered the questions. He identified himself, told him to go to Damascus where he was arranging to have this man named Ananias tell him what he was appointed to do. Namely, these three things. To know God's will, to see and hear the voice of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom he was seeing and hearing right now, (laughs) and to be a witness, a martus, where we get the word martyr, to be a witness of Jesus to everyone, which is what he was doing now before this hostile crowd. Okay? All right, so Paul finished his address at the, at the end of his address, I won't go through the whole thing, but what we didn't read is what he described, another dialogue he had with Jesus years later, a couple years later, in Jerusalem, when Paul wanted to stay and witness to his fellow Jews. But Jesus sent him far away to the Gentiles, and he quoted Jesus, and he used the word Gentiles. And when he said the word Gentiles, remember what they were, they were unhappy about him with? The crowd raised their voices in objection, and he said he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting, throwing off their cloaks, flinging dust in the air. And the Roman tribune was more confused than ever. <laughs> And tried to figure out and find out why this was happening. Because Paul was talking in Hebrew. So he probably couldn't understand him. But trying to figure out. So he thought, well, I'll examine him by flogging. That's what you do, right? That'll get the word out of him. I'll examine him by flogging until Paul, kind of this time, he let him know ahead of time, I'm a Roman citizen. So he commanded the chief priests and council to meet. And that's how the chapter ends. Now let me come back to these two questions that Paul asked. Let me come back to these two questions. Who are you, Lord, and what shall I do, Lord? Both questions are appropriately addressed to the Lord. Remember the word Lord? The Greek word for it is kurios, and it means master, possessor, owner, and sovereign. We don't use the word much nowadays, except when we're talking about rental properties, right? We pay rent to the landlord. 
because the landlord owns the land. When we refer to Jesus as our person Lord, guess what we're saying? It's a very similar thing to say. It means that we recognize his sovereign authority and right of ownership over us. When we call Jesus Lord, it's not just a word. It actually means something. It means owner, master, sovereign. Have we truly given Jesus lordship over our lives that way? Is he our Lord and Savior when we say that? Okay, so the primary question is, he knew he was talking to the Lord, but he didn't know who he was. So the primary question is, who are you, Lord? Identify yourself. Help me understand what you're like if you are Lord. You know, the relevance of the second question is based on the, answer, the substance of the answer to the first question. If the answer to the first question is not satisfying and compelling, you may not care to ask the second question, right? But if the answer to the first question is as significant as it appears to be that the Lord is Jesus, maker of heaven and earth, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the living Word of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and the one to whom belongs all authority in heaven and on earth, if this is who is Lord, and we realize that He will accomplish everything that He intends to accomplish, and that none of His purposes can be thwarted, and we also remember that He's gentle and lowly in heart, if that's true, if that's who the Lord is, then I do want to know what he wants me to do. These two questions are what I built my life purpose and goals around almost 40 years ago. I asked the question, who are you, Lord? And as I walk with him, living out my study and application of the Word of God, I have often asked this question God, okay, stop everything, I'm, I'm reading the Word, and I run into something, and I say, time out, stop everything, as though God's going to actually stop everything. He says, hold, every, hold your hold. says, is this what you're like? Right here. Is this what you're like? Is this what you do in the how you are? Because if this is what you're like, it really means a lot to me, and it's going to impact what I do. So I asked, Actually, three questions. Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? And then I threw this one in. I said, what, what do you want me to be like? What do you want me to be? One of the verses that um, I looked at to help answer these questions was Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which Brett read. So I said, who are you, Lord? Whoops. And he said, I am Jesus, to whom... All authority in heaven and earth has been given. Okay. It's one of the questions, one of the answers, one of the verses I would go to, there's others, who to, to answer the question, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. Okay. Wow. Okay. And then, as if to beg the second question, he says, therefore. And I say, well, what do you want me to do, Lord? 
And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. This is actually the work that I did almost 40 years ago. Um, we didn't have computers back then. At least I didn't have one. Uh, we didn't have a personal computer, so it's all handwritten. Um, and here it was in 1985, written July of 1985, put into practice. Uh, I don't know why it took me so long. Uh, January of '86. Uh, but it says, "Who is God?" And I have Psalm 46:10. Be still and know that I'm God. Kind of like the song that Hannah played. And then this, this, uh, the questions are, uh, what does God want me to do? And then I have Matthew 28, 18 through 20, to make disciples of all nations and teach them to do the same. Taking Christ's great commission personally. That was what I wrote there. One of the guys who uh, I discipled in college uh, back in, uh, in the late 70s, I remember him uh, studying the Great Commission down at Amherst, Mass. for a summertime. And I met with him, and we prayed together in my car. And he prayed over me that God would use me to make disciples of all nations. And I couldn't believe the audacity of that prayer. And I'm sitting there in the, in the car, and I look over at Bill, and with one eye open, look, is he serious? Did he really just pray that? <laughs> And that's what I mean by taking the Great Commission seriously. So I began to do that because the guy I discipled started to pray that for me. Well, in closing, I just want to reiterate these two great questions. Who are you, Lord, and what shall I do? I think these are the right questions for each of us to ask God to ask Him on a daily basis, whenever we meet together or study His Word, whenever we're at home, work, or play, let's ask these questions. And especially when we're developing or reviewing our life purpose and direction. If God's purposes cannot be thwarted, wouldn't it only make sense to align my purposes with His? Wouldn't it make sense? When Norell and I were first married, the summer of our marriage, after our marriage, I think it was summer, we took this couple, um, Bob and Crystal, out to a, a, a place out in Pennsylvania for a weekend before we had, either of us had kids. We spent the whole week and talking about life purpose. And we asked these questions. And one of the things we talked about is, well, what are the purposes of God? What's He doing in this world? Let's get on board with Him. And then we'll figure out what we should do. Because if we try to do something different than what He's doing, what we might find is we are opposing God, like Paul was on the road to Damascus. So let's find out what God's doing in this world and align our purposes to His. Let's ask the question, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do, Lord? Amen? Amen. Okay, well, let's pray. 
we come to you, O God, with these two questions. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do, Lord? Help us to ask these two questions regularly and to seek you and your word to find the answers. Would you help us to know you and experience your character and nature in our lives as we walk with you day by day? And help us to follow you, God. Help us to understand your purposes in this life and to align our purposes with yours. Give us the strength and the faith to glorify you, to love others, and to make disciples of Christ, which is the mission of this church. God, we thank you for these things, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.